This is Rocky Snyder. At the tone, leave your name and message and I'll get back to you. Richard, do I have a mark on my face? It really hurts. Nope, nothing. I thought I hit you on the shoulder. My shoulder doesn't hurt very much, but my face does. <laughs> Okay, let's take a little bit of time and talk about rotator cuffs. So I'm Rocky Snyder in our fitness studio here in Santa Cruz, and we're going to be talking about the rotator cuff. So I know that that is an area of concern for quite a few people, and I think we'll see an increase in issues in the tissues, so to speak, around the shoulder as we have become more and more inclined to be on the laptop these days with shelter in place. I know that my meter, the one that counts how many hours I spend a day on my devices has elevated considerably. And unfortunately that involves a lot of forward arm position, which we'll get to in a moment and how that affects the rotator cuff. But what I thought I'd do initially is to just explain what it is in fact, what is the rotator cuff? Because we hear that in conversation and maybe we just think that's the shoulder itself when in fact it's it's basically the muscles and some tendons that connect around the shoulder to keep everything in place. So the shoulder, I guess by definition, is made up of the arm bone, your collarbone, and your shoulder blade. So anatomically speaking, the arm bone is called the humerus, and the proximal head of the humerus is coming almost into contact, but not quite, with the clavicle, which is your collarbone, and your scapula, which is the shoulder blade. Now, the interesting thing is we call it a joint, but the bones actually never really meet. At least they shouldn't meet all that often. The joint, in fact, is the space between the bones. And just like that Goldilocks story, we want it to be somewhere in between, not too far apart and not too close together. But we want to be in this kind of nice middle ground where the bones can move freely without impeding one another, without bumping into each other, and not too far apart where there's subluxation, dislocation, laxity, you know, too, too soft of a tissue. Now, the rotator cuff itself is made up of four muscles. The four muscles being the teres minor, kind of like underneath your armpit in a way and in the back. The supraspinatus, which is on top, just behind the, the top of your, your shoulder blade. The infraspinatus, which is below that. So we have superior and inferior spinatus, supra and infraspinatus. And then we've got this muscle underneath the shoulder blade called the subscapularis, under the scapula, subscapula subscapularis. So these four muscles are not all that big compared to a lot of the muscles that surround the upper quadrant of your torso, like your pec major and minor and your lat muscle that comes underneath and not to mention the deltoid muscles that make up the shoulder cap. But these small four muscles are it's their responsibility is to kind of keep the bones in place and to allow movement to occur and to hopefully keep it from moving too far. 
The trouble here is that there's other muscles that I just mentioned, like the lats and the pecs, the pectorals, the chest and the outer back muscles, and as well as muscles that are connected to the shoulder blade that play upon or prey upon those rotator cuff muscles. So I guess we should think about the joint itself first. Every time you bring your arm forward, the arm bone is moving forward, and most of the time it's going to rotate inward. We call that internal rotation. So the top of your humerus and the collarbone start to move in toward each other. If that happens and stays that way over time from too much driving, typing, uh, reading, uh, desk work, anything you can think of, anytime we bring the arms forward and the palms go downward, that is creating internal rotation, which is closing the space between the collarbone and the humerus. That joint in the shoulder, it's called the AC joint for short, which is short for the acromioclavicular joint. Clavicular, collarbone, the acromion process or the acromion of the upper arm is the, the part of the bone that comes close to that collarbone. So the AC joint. There's another joint in the shoulder that attaches the arm bone to the shoulder blade. That's the glenohumeral joint, the GH joint. So the shoulder is not a deep socketed joint such as the hip itself. It doesn't go deep in like the femur into the pelvis. It actually is more of a shallow kind of ball and socket action where there are two attachments kind of between the collarbone and the scapula. So that AC joint in the front starts to get smaller in regards to the spacing when the arm comes forward and rotates inward. And you'll often hear the term impingement. And what that means is the tissue that is between those two spaces and some nerves for that matter may get pinched or impinged. And so any movement in the shoulder joint with that small space now even smaller could cause some discomfort or uh, pain. And they may say that you're impinged. Oftentimes, the surgical approach has been to shave down the bones of the collarbone to create more spacing there. And by having more spacing, there is less impingement, less pinching of the nerves and tissue, and so things feel better. And that's one common approach. But there is a reason why that there was no space to begin with. Unless you had congenital birth issues or something and you were born that way, most of the time, it's based on your structure or your movement. So rotator cuff problems will occur when this action happens to the shoulder because those rotator cuff muscles, mainly on the back of the shoulder, are being pulled and stretched out and they're having to contract and almost like a rubber band or if you've got a friend dangling from a cliff and you're holding on to them, those muscles are stretching out and you're bearing weight onto it. You can only do that for so long before bad things are gonna happen. So those rotator cuff muscles are being pulled apart and the weight of your arm and the movement forward is now asking those muscles to contract to prevent any more pulling apart from happening. And the more we stay in that position, the more normalized that becomes to the point where those muscles have a hard time recognizing that they need to be shortened 
back into a more neutral or resting position. So we begin to create these patterns that get reinforced over time. And before you know it, somebody tells you, oh, you're slouching. Pull those shoulders back. You've got all this hunching going on. Well, we'll get into why that is, but it's a strategy your body is, your brain is trying to do to try and keep you from falling over because maybe some areas are not doing its fair share, which also brings into the, the conversation, where does the shoulder begin and end? We can look in the anatomy books and we can see by definition where the shoulder is and what it makes up of. But you know, that collarbone comes over and attaches to the sternum and the rib cage. And that scapula back there, it glides along the rib cage and there's muscles attaching it to the spine as well as a whole bunch of other areas. And that arm bone, by the way, well, it's attached to the chest muscles and in your big lat muscles that come down and attach to your pelvis. So if my pelvis were to change position, how would that affect my shoulder? And conventionally speaking, the approach that often is taken in the medical world is they are not actually looking at what's going on with the pelvis. And for that matter, they wouldn't even think to look down at the feet because if the feet changed, then the pelvis would change, which would change the shoulder. And it may cause that rotator cuff to become in a weakened, compromised position. So what we're going to do today is actually look at the rotator cuff from a full body perspective and show you that the position that your hips may be in or one foot being a little bit more dropped in an arch or one being higher may actually be the underlying problem as to why you're encountering a lot of issues around the rotator cuff. Now, granted, a lot of repetitive action may play a big part of that, but if the body is in its proper position, if the joints are in where they should be, and the movement, regardless how repetitive it is, if it's fairly clean and efficient, most of the time it's not going to elicit a pain response or a weakening or a tearing. So it's not so much the action that you do repetitive over time that is the cause. It may be contributing, but there is a way in which your body has preferred to move around certain issues of, of restriction that may be asking the rotator cuff to do more. So we've got posture distortion, we've got blunt force trauma. I mean, you could have been in a side impact car accident and, and that force could very well have caused a lot of issues with your rotator cuff. There's also birthing issues coming out of the birth canal, one shoulder going forward, typically first compared to the other, that could set us up. We've got also surgeries. If you've had a surgery, maybe not in the shoulder itself, but somewhere else, that could lead to a position of the shoulder that would cause the rotator cuff to get weakened over time. And then we also have incomplete rehabilitation. So you might have gone to a physical therapist to deal with the shoulder issue, but unless they were dealing with the whole body and really fully rehabilitated that shoulder into doing what it's doing, then the underlying imbalances that did not get addressed may still contribute to ongoing shoulder issues. So those are typically what is going to be the underlying cause and effect. What we're gonna focus on today is your posture and, and how your rotator cuff has to behave in relation to the rest of your body. So 
let's take into consideration uh, a throwing action because you hear this all the time in sports. Uh, a baseball pitcher has trouble with their rotator cuff, partly because after they take a fastball, 90 to 100 plus mile an hour, and they hurl it through down to home plate, the weight of the arm, which is on average 10 to 15 pounds, is now hurtling fast forward. And unless those muscles do something to slow that advancement of the arm down, the arm is just going to come tearing off the body. We need the tissue to slow everything down. So all of that force that it is projecting forward has to be met with an equal and opposite force to slow it down. Now, I'm going to change the angle of this camera up so that I get a little bit more full body action. Because as you recall me talking about the rotator cuff or the shoulder, the, there's so many other muscles that attach to the arm, the shoulder blade and so on, that when the arm comes forward, the muscles down along that same side back, those lat muscles are also being lengthened. And that is the biggest muscle of the upper body. So you would hope that those big thick muscles that attach from your pelvis low and mid back along your spine and come out and attach to that arm, they would be acting almost like a parachute, slowing everything down, lengthening, and then bringing the shoulder back. But what happens if those muscles back there are not so easily lengthened and they don't do the work that they should? Now, if we can follow that down, that lat muscle on that throwing arm side, well, that tissue actually connects across the lower back and over to the opposite hip into the largest muscle of the body, the gluteus maximus. And that muscle should also, in concert with the lat muscles, have to slow down all that force forward and lengthen. So one leg forward, opposite of the throwing arm, the arm swings itself forward. We should see on the back side of the body, the lat muscle on that same side, down across to the back side of the opposite hip into those hamstrings and glute muscles, all that tissue should be doing the majority of decelerating that arm. I bring this up because what happens if your hip is not very flexible, if your hamstring's a little locked up, or your lower back is having a tendency not to be able to lengthen and flex, but it stays kind of locked in an extended position. Any of these are going to reduce the effectiveness of taking that arm and decelerating it. So who's gonna have to take up the slack? The rotator cuff. So could it be that rotator cuff tears are occurring because other tissue is not doing its job? Other joints are not moving in a certain pattern or rhythm to allow the tissue to lengthen. And that's really a big cause of rotator cuff tearing. Whether you're a tennis player, a golfer, a baseball pitcher, heck, even a professional or amateur bowler, all the time you swing that arm forward, there's gotta be an equal and opposite reaction. And the more we do this, the more we develop these patterns of weakness and restriction. It's not a self-correcting kind of mechanism. So what if we were to simply free up the areas that are restricted 
What kind of effect would that have on the rotator cuff? Now, all this time for 25 plus years of seeing clients in here, many coming in with shoulder issues, a lot of those clients will bring in these sheets and sheets of papers, typically in a file folder, and they show me some of them are circled, some of them are X'd out, but these are all the ones that were given to them by their either their doctor, some chiropractors, maybe a massage therapist uh, that might delve into exercise, but specifically, more often than not, physical therapists, they will have these mimeograph sheets that make up their rotator cuff protocol. And the protocol is we go from A to G, and you have to go through these steps in order to rehabilitate the rotator cuff. And often is the case, you'll see a lot of these isolated motions of rotation at the shoulder in a way to try and open up the shoulders, free up the chest, and really target the rotator cuff. Now imagine this, if you were walking down a city street and you came upon a dark alley and somebody pulled you in there and roughed you up and took your purse or took your wallet and ran away and somebody comes to help you and they spend all the time with you and they try and make you stronger and try and give you a flashlight and make sure that everything's good. <laughs> And no one is looking for the culprit. No one is looking for the guy that came in and roughed you up. I think that is the conventional approach more often to rehabilitation in the rotator cuff. More often, we focus on the rotator cuff muscles. And we're taking an area that is overstimulated, that doesn't know how to contract very well, that is being pulled apart by all the culprits elsewhere, and and very rarely does anybody say, hey, let's just look at what the opposite hamstring is doing or how is that glute on the opposite hip? Is it restricted? Is it the same flexibility as the hip on the other side? It could be worth exploring because it may just say that, oh, my shoulder can't get stronger as long as it's being asked to be ripped apart every time my arm comes forward. So, we, we might need to consider that. And I think that's what we're going to do. Let's find out if first, where your restrictions are in your shoulders, because we don't want to negate the fact that your shoulder may be an area that has to be kind of retaught how to move properly. But let's look at the other areas of the body too. So this is going to be a hands-on virtual kind of workshop here. I've given you the lecture, the practical portion, explaining what the rotator cuff is and, and how it relates to other areas. But what I'd really like to do is have you feel and bring experience into your body and actually bring awareness into how it is you move. So the first things first, if you don't mind, go ahead and stand up and just relax your arms by your side. And if you can see yourself in your screen, just get a sense of how your arms hang down by your side. Do you notice that one hand is touching your leg while the other one isn't? Just simple little observations. Do you see that one hand is maybe slightly turned a little bit more than the other, whether it's internally where the thumb is coming toward the front of your thigh or if it's turning outward? 
most of us are going to have our arms turning inward. And where do they sit in relation to your thighs? Is there one that's higher up versus the other? Are both of them sitting on the front of your thighs or are they beside your body? Are they more like you're at attention and they're perfectly relaxed by your side here? Or are they being pulled forward and outward? So all we're trying to do is bring awareness. And maybe after this session, you might look back and reassess your arm position. We may actually see a change, which is really what we're kind of hoping for if you're one that has some shoulder issues. Okay. Let's see what movement of the shoulder is now that you've understood the position of where your arms dangle. If you were to keep one arm straight and raise it forward and toward the overhead position, we call this shoulder flexion. And just bring it up. When does it start to feel restricted? When do you maybe start to feel like you have to apply extra energy or force to raise it overhead? And then compare it to the other arm. Are you able to keep the elbow straight? Or do you find that it's bending in order for you to try and reach the hand up higher? Remember, we're looking for shoulder motion, not for hand motion. So what is it like to raise the arm and create shoulder flexion? Is it different from one side to the other? Now we're not trying to hunt pain out either, but, so, but if you do feel pain, that's good information also, because it's telling you, well, this movement isn't quite ideal. It's not happening the way we want it to, or else I wouldn't be feeling that pain. So just get a sense of what shoulder is a little stickier, which one requires a little bit more energy or effort to get into. Now, I know that we've been walking for millions of years and there's certain patterns and movement. For instance, when one arm swings forward, the opposite leg is swinging forward relatively at the same time. So what if the sticky side, whichever shoulder that was, that you struggled with in shoulder flexion, raising it and forward, what if you took the opposite leg and just stepped forward? So if it was your right shoulder that was sticky, take your left leg forward. Or if it was the opposite, we just do the opposite. Check with bearing a little bit of weight onto that forward leg, just check your shoulder range of motion again. Did that improve it? So I see some nods in the audience saying yes. How interesting is that? To improve my shoulder function, I placed one leg forward. That placed my hips in a different position. That forced me to try and balance myself in this new place where my spine had to adjust to that, as well as my shoulder. How cool would that be? If I could find a place that allowed my shoulder to move better, maybe I'll start to practice being in this place just a little bit more often. Maybe when it comes to my exercises, I might want this leg more forward when I'm doing some kind of standing exercises. How cool would that be? All right, so we've just found for some of us that changing our stance helps change our shoulder function. Very cool. How about this? What about our spine? If you were to just let your sternum in the front of your rib cage just sink a little bit, kind of like you're slouching. Check your shoulder range of motion again. What is shoulder flexion like now? Not as good, huh? 
by dropping the rib cage down and flexing through the spine, often we'll find that you're unable to get the arm quite as high. If you were to just encourage that sternum upward a little bit and not bending backwards, just being tall and check your shoulder range of motion again, does that affect it as well? So we've now explored a stance and a spinal position that directly relates to the shoulder. Pretty cool. Let's look at a different shoulder motion. This is called abduction. You'll have your palm facing forward with your arm straight and by your side. One arm will reach out to your side and up overhead as if you're exaggerating a gigantic wave. And then you can bring that out and down and back to your side. Now try the other side and just get a sense of what the quality of motion is like from one to the other. Do you feel that the shoulder has to lift up in order for the arm to come up? Or does the shoulder stay relatively low? Does the head stay still or do you find yourself pulling your head toward your arm to close the space to convince your unconscious mind that you're doing really well with that? So now you're using your head to do something that the shoulder should be doing. Did anybody get a sense of that? These are all wonderful ways of assessing movement in the body to understand how it is you've created these subconscious strategies of, of creating movement in the shoulder or wherever. So you felt most likely one shoulder slightly different than the other. So the one that you felt more restricted, let's do this. Let's just glide your hips toward that direction. So if it was your right shoulder that you felt a little restricted coming out and around, go ahead and just glide your hips slightly over to the right and check that arm range of motion again. Did that help? Cool. A couple more nods. All right. So now gliding the hips side to side may encourage shoulder action. These are pretty cool. So what if the ability to move your pelvis and the hips and it really directly related to how the rotator cuff is doing? I know this is non-conventional, but it is just based on biomechanics. If I can get my hips moving better, more free, it's not going to ask the shoulders to be in a compromised position and could actually free up their mechanics. All right. Now, along the same line, we were talking about the opposite hip and shoulder. Like when you walk, they swing forward or they swing back at the same time. Well, they have this wonderful opposing kind of relationship that has been governed over us for 2 million years in our nervous system. What if we were to waken the hip on the opposite side to improve the shoulder that you feel restricted? What we can do is, with or without a chair to support yourself with a seat back, let's just say my right shoulder is the restricted shoulder and I have a hard time maybe rotating it or raising it overhead. If I were to just do some simple hip circles with my left leg, meaning I'm gonna lift my leg off the ground, keep my knee straight and balancing on my right leg, I'm just gonna make maybe about half a dozen circles in clockwise. And then I'm going to make half a dozen nice circles with a stiff leg on that left side, counterclockwise. And just waking up movement in that joint, 
We call that an open chain action. Check with your shoulder now. What is that range of motion like? Did that change it in any way? What we might find is that by getting some movement in that opposite hip, it helps that shoulder out. You know, so I'm not really talking about the rotator cuff so much as the mechanics of the joint. Because if we get the shoulder moving the way it should, then the rotator cuff muscles are going to be behaving the way they should. So we're not actually focusing on the muscles. And that would be unfair because you have dozens of muscles that surround your shoulder. And I'd rather not just focus on the four small ones. I'd like all of them to kind of participate and play nicely together. So if we can get the joint moving the way it should, then we're pretty assured that all the muscles around there are going to be like a beautiful concert and be playing with one another in rhythm. Okay, let's work on a little shoulder action and see what the fluidity of movement is in your shoulders. You've already shown us what it's like to lift it up overhead and so on, which for many of us actually may not be the most comfortable place. We can move the shoulder without moving the arm. For instance, can you just make circles with your shoulders with your arms dangling down? We're still affecting the shoulder joint. It's rounding forward and back. It's lifting up and going down. It's moving internally and externally. We're getting many of the movements that the shoulder should be responsible for, but we're just not taking the weight of the arm and asking the rotator cuff to, to try and support the weight of it against gravity. Just keep it down there. We can go in both directions. That's simple enough. And all we're doing is stimulating the proper kind of circular pattern that the shoulder should be responsible for. Do you feel how your shoulder blades slide apart when the shoulders come forward and how they move toward each other when the shoulders draw back? All right. Well, we can do that same circular action, but we can have the arm extended. And like the rod that connects two wheels of a locomotive train together and create a cam-like action, that's what we're going to do with the arm. So we're going to encourage you to keep the elbow straight. You can either make a fist or hand open. I prefer making a fist because that wakes up the shoulder muscles. It's one of the fastest ways to activate shoulder muscles is just making that fist. And keeping my elbow straight, I'm going to drive it forward. I'm going to lift the shoulder up. I'm going to pull it back behind me and I'm going to drop it down. So I'm making a cam-like action on that shoulder, lifting up, pulling back, dropping down, and going forward. Can you do this cam shaft action? Now I have my arm pointing straight ahead in front of me, but I can also bring it out at a 45 degree angle and create that cam shaft action also. Now you'll see that my rib cage with my hand holding on the front of it isn't really going anywhere. But my arm is reaching forward, outward, as the shoulder goes up and down. You can change direction. So now this beautiful pattern of motion is starting to unlock that shoulder. And then just out of curiosity, what is that like? Now that you've just done a little cam action, does that change your range of motion in the shoulder? <laughs> I can see a few that are almost now double jointed. They're going so far. How wild is that? Just a simple circular pattern 
wakes up all the tissue around there and gets that shoulder to move better. And the more it can move the way it was designed, the happier it's going to be. So we have these shoulder cams. Now we may want to try it out to the side. I'm just switching arms now just to show you that we can do both sides. And it may be that you want to do both sides. There is reasons for that. One is to explore the difference in your cam action. Which one is the more challenged side in terms of coordination? Which direction gives you a better range of motion or more fluidity of movement? The other thing that we didn't speak about is when I do movement on one side of my body, such as holding my arm out in space here and doing those camshafts, my subconscious, my brain, actually sends a signal to my opposite shoulder to create stability because the weight of my body is pulling as I bring that arm outward. So the opposite side has to engage to try and keep me balanced. So if I want to try and create better stability in my shoulder, let's say my right shoulder, I'm going to actually do exercises on my left side to send stabilizing signals to that right shoulder. It's kind of interesting to play with. As soon as you know how the brain sends signals, it changes the way in which you can create exercises or select them, and especially from side to side. So there's your shoulder camps. Now, what we can also do is, we talked about the hips. Well, let's kind of look at that a little bit. We can put ourselves into kind of a forward stride position. In this case, I'm going to bring my left leg forward with my right leg back. And I'm going to just bend into my left knee to bring my weight onto my left foot. The right leg, meanwhile, the heel will be drawn off the floor gently as I travel forward onto the left, but my right knee is going to remain straightened or lengthened. I want to try and keep it extending, not locked out into a hyperextended place, but definitely not flexed or bent. And what might be experienced here just by loading onto my left leg, bending into that knee, while keeping the right leg straightened behind me, is I might start to experience this really nice stretch in the front of my right hip and thigh and maybe into the groin. Now remember, when the left leg comes forward, the right arm needs to swing forward too. So if I'm restricted in my right hip flexors and groin, that's going to restrict how I bring my weight onto my left leg, which will affect how my shoulder is going to behave. Interesting. So a hip flexor area that's restricted could actually restrict my shoulder as well. So let's kind of look at that. We can do a bit of a hip flexor stretch like we're doing now, or we can make it just a little bit more challenging using a chair and kneeling on the ground. So I might be near a wall just for balance and support, but I'm going to lower my right knee down to the ground with my right foot resting on the seat of the chair behind me. My right knee is directly underneath my right hip in a nice straight line from the floor. And then in this position, I'm going to gently encourage the front bony part of my pelvis to lift upward toward my belly button. In essence, trying to gently pull my tailbone just a little bit to the ground. And instantly, most of us will feel a tremendous lengthening sensation in the front of that hip and thigh. 
And then from here, I'm going to take the same side arm of that right knee that's down, and I'm going to raise that right arm upward to the ceiling. And try this several times in this position. And what you're most likely going to experience is how the tissue underneath the right arm, maybe between the rib cage, maybe between the ribs and the pelvis, or maybe just the tissue down the front of the hip and thigh, are restricting your ability to raise that right arm overhead. So we can continually try and encourage that tissue to open up. Because when we get out of that position and start moving around, now that that area has some space, it could very well allow that shoulder to move a lot better. So whichever shoulder was the sticky side, see what the hip flexor on that same side is like. Is that where you hold a lot of your tension or your restriction? I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. Now the hip flexor on that same side in movement is directly related to the back of the thigh on the opposite leg. So the front of my right hip and thigh has to lengthen at the same time the muscles on the back of my left hip and thigh have to lengthen. Kind of get that sense? When that left leg swings forward, the back of the thigh has to get longer for that leg to travel forward. And of course, as that left leg travels forward, the right leg is kind of traveling back. So the muscles in the front portion of the hip and thigh on that right leg have to lengthen. So if it isn't the hip flexor on one side that is struggling, perhaps it's the hip extensors on the opposite that are struggling, such as the hamstrings, the buttocks, the gluteals. So we can actually look at that as well with the help of this chair. So I'm going to place, again, the chair near the wall in case I need it to hold on to or for balance. But if it's my right shoulder that I'm coming back to as my sticky side, I'm going to take my left foot and I'm going to place it up on the chair so that my heel is resting on the seat cushion. I'm going to take the roof of my foot and I'm going to draw it back toward me so that that leg is extending at the knee. And just play around with that for a moment. Feel like when you point your foot away from you, how that softens the knee and it relaxes the muscles underneath the leg. But as soon as you pull the laces of your shoes toward you, that encourages that knee to extend, and now you already feel most likely the tissue underneath the thigh and behind the knee lengthening. All right. In this position, you're going to try and push the back of your rib cage and your hips back behind you, while at the same time taking your hand and reaching forward toward that toe. So my left leg is on the chair with the foot pointing upward. The left knee is extended or straightening. I'm pushing my hips and mid-back back behind me while my right arm reaches forward. So as the right arm goes forward, the spine goes back. The tailbone tucks down. And the other ingredient I would add to this recipe is that the weight of the leg should be felt into the chair. So this leg is about 25 pounds. I want to make sure there's about 20 to 25 pounds of, of weight being felt against that seat cushion. And then instantly you feel how that changes the, the sensation in the muscle. It's not a burning, stretching sensation. If it is, you're tilting the pelvis forward instead of backwards. You're not pushing the rib cage back. You're tilting it forward. 
We want to make sure that those areas go back as the arm goes forward. And then check out your shoulder range of motion after that. You can reach in any direction. I'm not asking you to hunt down the pain, but just see what that feels like. Did that free up your movement? So again, we're not going to be doing a lot of rubber band exercises. It's not to say that they're not important or there is, there is a place for those. We definitely know that those can be effective, but it's only addressing one small aspect of how your shoulder behaves. And it's, it's teaching the muscle to try and do something that it struggles to do. And more frequently, we will find that those type of exercises are too hard for the muscles and it encourages compensation. So you're not even performing them the way they were designed to be performed or thought to be performed, but now you're finding a new way to kind of quote unquote cheat or get around those issues in the tissues. So we've done a little bit of shoulder cams and changed your leg position. Uh, we've allowed the hip flexor to open and the hip extensors to open. And now the, the shoulder is probably behaving a little differently. Out of curiosity, if you were to stand and just check in once more with where your arms are in space, have they changed a little bit? I'm not looking for them to necessarily return back to a great balanced position. I'm just looking, have we made a difference? Is there change occurring in your system that now you have to accommodate? So where are the arms? Are they more by your side and pulled back or are they more rounded forward? Is one higher than the other now or are they balanced out? Just kind of curious to, for those observations. All right. So what I'd like to do now also is, is a little bit of rotation because we haven't really brought in rotation. We've been raising the arm forward or to your side, but most muscles attach in a diagonal fashion, including the ones around your shoulders and the arms attached, the muscles attached to your arms, like the latissimus dorsi and the, the pectoral muscles, they come in a certain diagonal action. So when they contract, they actually cause rotation. We haven't really worked on rotation so much. So let's do that right now. What we'll be doing is standing once again with your feet underneath you in a parallel, comfortable stance. And the shoulder that you find impinged or internally rotated more than the other or the rotator cuff side, I guess we'll say, the one that is the most cranky, that's the side we're going to be rotating toward. So... I'm just going to stay with that right shoulder theory that that's the one that is kind of gunked up or restricted for me. And all I wanna do is keeping my body where it is, what is it like to turn to my right? And then come back around. So when I turn to my right, where does my shoulder go? My right shoulder obviously is gonna be drawn back behind me. And for most people with impingement or internal rotation or rotator cuff problems, where does that arm typically go? Well, it goes forward. So just simply rotating the body toward the side that's affected may really be a nice approach to treating the shoulder to something it doesn't do normally. We can add to this, and all we need to do is simply turn the arm outward 
kind of like you're hitchhiking. You're going to stick that thumb out and the thumb is going to draw you around to the right and then come back around. Now we're made up of all these segments of, of ability to rotate, meaning it's just not the shoulder that's turning back behind you. As you turn, get the, get the pelvis to rotate to the right first. You'll feel how the arch of your right foot is lifting up and the left foot is dropping down most likely. After a while, the pelvis can't rotate any further to the right. Your left knee is most likely bending or flexing with your right knee straightening. These are common patterns of movement. Now, when we get to that end range with the pelvis rotating right, can you rotate the rib cage further on top of it? And then from there, can you bring that thumb around and back behind you? And you can even turn your head to the right and your eyes. Does that give you even more range of motion? You'd be surprised how just by moving your eyes increase your range. So let's just work with that for maybe five or six repetitions, rotating to the desired direction that you want until the pelvis gets to its end range. Then have the rib cage take over and rotate as far as it wants to go. From there, allow the arm to begin to be rotating to draw the shoulder back, and then take the eyes and the head and continue the journey. Did that just give you a tremendous amount more rotation in your body in terms of total body rotation? Chances are it did compared to when you first initially began rotating. Okay, you've done a few repetitions there. Now check in with your shoulders range of motion. How does it feel to lift your arm up? Is the shoulder less talkative? Is it complaining more or less? What is it like to move? Pretty interesting. For me, I feel like that really opened up my ability to move and my arm is not dangling in front of me, but it's more by my side. Now we've done this full body action, but I wanna finish with some actions we call arm cogs. These are cog wheel like motions that occur when the body moves. One bone moves in one direction while the other moves in the opposite clockwise, counterclockwise, that allows tissue to lengthen at one end while shortening at another. And so we're going to look at how the tissue surrounding the shoulder girdle behaves. Can we kind of wring it out like a wash rag or can we get it to be more like saltwater taffy and have it be much more pliable? So we can do that with our arms down by our side to start off with. And we're just going to turn the elbows inward just as much as possible. And then turn the elbows outward. And we're doing these with both arms at the same time. That's called bilaterally, both sides. I didn't say rotate the hands in because I can rotate my wrists, my hands, and even my elbows without any motion occurring at my shoulder. So rather than thinking of rotating the hands, think of the pit of your elbow, that soft patch in the front of the crease of your elbow, I want you to turn those inward just as much as possible. You'll get to a point where you can't rotate anymore and then the shoulders begin to move forward and upward, which forces your rib cage in the front to drop downward. And then just unwind that, 
turning the softness of the elbows outward, you'll feel how the shoulders pull down and back and the front of your chest or sternum lifts upward. What is that relationship like? Can you get these joints to behave in this way where rotating my arms outward encourages my shoulders down, my scapula toward each other, toward the spine, and my rib cage tilts up in front? And then when I go in the opposite direction, the shoulders travel forward, rounding into that space and beyond, shoulders elevating, and the rib cage in front drops and flexes my spine. So by making these arm actions, I'm improving my ability of my spine to extend and to flex. For my rib cage and shoulder blades to start to glide, not frozen together, but to unlock and all the tissue between them, just start to feel what it's like to lengthen and shorten. Now that's with both arms going together. Remember, we move by our arms going in opposite directions and rotating in opposite directions. When the arm swings forward as we walk, it gently externally rotates so the palm faces forward. And as the arm swings back, it goes in the opposite direction and turns inward. So let's see what that's like. With your arms out by your side, if you can do shoulder height, that's wonderful. If you need to bring it down lower for more comfort, that's fine. But you're going to take one arm and you're going to turn it internally so that the palm flips downward and back behind you while the other arm that palm flips upward and then we're just going to reverse direction one that was flipped up is now internally rotating while the other one externally rotates almost egyptian hieroglyphics here can you keep your head nice and level and fairly still and let the movement of the arms work underneath them in opposing actions. What you might find, is aside from a little popping and cracking that are occurring, is that it's really easy to go in one direction and keep your head still, and not necessarily in the opposite. But that just gives you more insight as to what you might want to work, try and reintroduce proper movement. So this wringing out of tension is just encouraging all the tissue around my shoulder girdle to understand what it needs to do. But at the same time, my neck and my rib cage, my head, my hips, everything has to understand what it needs to do to allow that to occur. Beautiful. I could do the same thing with my arms moving forward rather than being out by my side. So as one arm comes forward to shoulder height, I'm going to rotate the arm externally so the palm faces forward, while the opposite arm traveling back behind me is going to turn internally so the palm rotates toward and back behind me. And then from this position, I'm just going to bring those arms back to neutral and continue on so that the arm that was behind me is now in front externally rotating, while the arm that was in front is now behind me internally rotating. Can I do this and allow my arms to travel to their end range without my body necessarily going anywhere? Like the forward arm is not pulling me forward any more than the backward arm is. They are moving in opposition, but the action is negating the motion of where my body wants to travel. I'm not being drawn forward or back. 
These are just brilliant motions, joint mechanics to wake up the entire body. Of course, those were more concentrated on the shoulders themselves. But what I've found over time is often the restriction lies somewhere else and the shoulders are becoming less restricted, moving more than their fair share to make up for the difference. Often is the case because we've been seated, seated for a long period of time on our laptops, behind our steering wheel, at our workplace, those muscles down around the pelvis and the hips become congested. And over time, they're not really being utilized. We get up out of our chair, walk to the break room, we come back down and we sit. We leave work, we walk down to the parking lot, we get into our luxury wheelchair, push down on the accelerator, turn the handle, and we're still sitting. Then we get up, we walk to the mailbox, get our mail, come back in, sit down at the dinner table, and that's our day for a lot of people. So by not using the hips, they get restricted, and of course the arms are constantly being asked to do more because of that. So there is, there it is right there. We have walked through opposing joint actions between the shoulder and the opposite hip. We have worked on shoulder cams. We've done some shoulder rolls or circles. We've tried to open up the back of one hip versus the front of the other. We've worked on increasing the amount of rotation the body can generate through all the segments. And then we've just worked on getting the arms to either move in concert with each other in the same direction or in opposing actions. So you've done quite a bit of re-educating of the entire frame of your body, all the while with the guise of working on your rotator cuff. Before you go, our new book, Return to Center, breaks down everything we did today and a whole lot more. So check it out at rockysnyder.com. Our link is on our page too. If you still haven't subscribed to this channel, please do. Thanks for watching.